turn to the letter Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. That is Philippians. Um, some of you may have got one of our journals. Um, they're awesome. Use them. They are fantastic. All right. Philippians chapter 2 this week. Philippians chapter 2 this week. And we are going to be reading verses 1 to 11. Verses 1 to 11. And in order to honor the reading of God's word, may you please stand. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 to 11 reads, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by making the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. God the Father. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word and your truth that communicates to us who you are and how you work in our lives. And so, God, we love this time of our gathering where we get to just sit and reflect on your truths. And so, God, we love it because we approach this time with expectations that you would speak. And so, God, you are speaking. So give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are willing to obey whatever you're calling us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. It was a hot, hot day in the city of Los Angeles. My wife and my family, we were invited to a potluck. And some of you know Eleanor, she loves to bake. And over the years, I would say she has mastered the art and science of baking. And so we were invited to a potluck, and my wife, because she loves to bake, offered to make the dessert. For the dessert, she decided to make one of her most beloved desserts, which is her carrot cake. It is incredible, but it's really, really bad for you. <laughs> Whatever, we still enjoy it. On the evening of the potluck, we were running late, 
cake wasn't ready. So what she decided to do in order to, um, she decided so that we could get there on time, at, you know, at least on time, um, she decided to skip one of the steps. And that was to wait for the cake to cool before covering it with the icing. Oh, some of you guys bake here, right? And you're like, oh, don't do that. Remember, it was a hot day in LA as well. So when the cake came out of the oven, she immediately covered it with the icing. We rushed out, got in the car, and soon, as we were making our way there, soon realized that icing on the cake had started to melt, and there was no way of stopping it. When we got to the potluck, the cake had fallen apart. It was a disaster, all because we decided to skip an important step. And that was the step or the element was the reason cake together. A missing element was the reason the icing on the cake melted. And so in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul, as we've read, you've probably noticed it, he desired um, the Philippians to be united. Okay, And last week, if you remember, we looked at the section before this, and Paul was asking them or calling them to unity, but he was calling them to unity when it comes to standing against opposition, external, outside opposition. But this week, he calls them to unity, but he's calling them to unity when it comes to how they relate to each other. And so in the same way the carrot cake fell apart because we didn't wait, we missed an important step, an important element, the unity, Paul would show us that the unity they have will fall apart, will not be sustained without a key element, which is humility. And so this morning, we're going to, of course, um, look at the topic of unity. But as we do that, we're going to be looking at three um, sections, three things, our need for unity, the threats to our unity, and the key to unity, the key to unity. And so first, our need, to un- our need for unity. Our need for unity, right? And so a few years after planting the church in Philippi, Paul, the apostle, who's the author, he finds himself locked up in a prison under house arrest in Rome, right? The house arrest was like a waiting room for his trial before Caesar. And as a missionary, as someone who is active and loves to travel and share the gospel, um, prison was less than ideal for Paul, but he was encouraged nonetheless to see God use his time in prison to reach the palace guards and set hearts on fire for gospel proclamation. Okay, while Paul was in prison, he was restricted, but the gospel was not. Okay, he had opportunities to share the gospel with the palace guards, and he also inspired Christians in Rome to become more passionate about sharing the gospel than ever before. During his time in prison, Paul remained active in ministry, not just when it comes to sharing the gospel, but 
He remained active in ministry by writing letters to churches he had started during his missionary journeys. And one of the churches he wrote a letter to was the church in Philippi. And in this part of the letter, he pleads with them to be united. And Paul's plea for unity is seen in verse 2. Look at verse 2 again. It says, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Paul loves the church in Philippi. All right, we've seen it at the beginning of the letter. He just communicated how every time he thinks about them, he is filled with joy. He loves the church in Philippi. They bring him so much joy. But he says here, the joy he feels towards them can only be complete when they're united. That is when they are being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. But before his plea for this kind of unity in verse, uh, in verse 2, what he does in verse 1 is he makes them aware of the reason why they should be united. The reason why they should be united. Look at verse 1. It says, He says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, right? Um, You see the word if, right? Most of you are using a translation that has if four times. It appears four times, right? You can actually replace it with words like since or because, And the reason why this is appropriate is because the word if refers to certainties, not possibilities. Paul uses what scholars call a first-class condition. Because of this, the four ifs are not meant to communicate uncertainties, right? As if he wasn't sure if they possessed these virtues or not. Rather, these virtues are assumed to be true. Charles Swindle, who's a Bible preacher, says it's like a dad saying to his son, if you're my son, if I'm your father, and if you're only seven, then go and clean your room. Okay? It's a bit like that. And I, I, you know, I have a seven-year-old, and I, I say this sentence, right? It's true, but sometimes the word if can come across as if it has uncertainties. But in this situation, like the illustration I just gave, it is certain. And so Paul's not doubting they possess any of these things. In fact, he's sure and confident that they do because of their union with Christ. They have encouragement. They're comforted by his love. They share in the spirit, and they are adorned with tenderness and compassion. These virtues are not possibilities, but realities for the followers of Jesus in Philippi. And I would say, if you make the connection, these virtues are not only for the church in Philippi, but they are for you, the church right here in San Diego. If you are a Christian, this is some of the truest thing about you. You have been encouraged in Christ. 
you have been comforted in his love. I am sure there has been seasons of your life of turmoil and challenges where you have experienced the unique and supernatural comfort of Jesus Christ. You also share in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's active presence, right, in your life. And you have experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you're a Christian, you've been adorned with tenderness and compassion. It's not an if, it's a sense. It's a certainty. And so this is what Paul is saying. Because you're united with Jesus Christ the King, then truly make me happy by being united with one another. Earlier, like I said, they were, this church was called to be united in standing firm against opposition. Now they're called to unity when it comes to relating to one another. As I said earlier when we introduced Jeremy and Nicole to announce that they're going to be um, stepping into the process of ordination, um, I said King's Cross Church has been in existence for four years. Four years in March, we celebrated our four-year anniversary, and that is a big deal because when, <laughs> when we were, before we started, and we were, you know, meeting on Sunday evenings, there's just about 10 of us, we were just imagining that God would build his church, and he has, and he has been incredibly faithful to us. He's provided everything that we needed. He really has, and so... For King's Cross Church to continue to be a church family on mission with Jesus, what we mainly need to be aware of is not for the next four years or for the next 14, 20 years, what we need to be aware of is not church growth strategies, like how can we actually grow the church, what we need to be aware of is not best practices on how we can um, best reach the community or how to leverage our social media um, presence for more visibility. Those things are good. But what I feel we need to hear most is the need for us to be united with one another because of our unity with Jesus Christ. Listen, COVID brought out so many things people divide on. COVID really did. And I, I'm a pastor, and so I am regularly in constant communications with, with, with other pastors. And we were so fearful that because of um, some of the differences that came to the surface as a result of COVID, we feared the worst. When it came to our churches, we feared division. There are a lot of things that could divide us. Every time I stand here and I see all of you, it looks amazing, okay? There are so many different people from different backgrounds, nationalities, all of that. And I'm like, this is awesome. But I also understand that because we are different, we have differences of opinion when it comes to so many things. And I can't think of a better reminder for us as a church than to be reminded that we need to be united, not around our love for trees, 
or our love for nature, or our love for hiking, or our love for San Diego, but we need to be united because of our love for Jesus. And the only reason why we love Jesus is because he first loved us and saved us. Just as Paul appealed to the church in Philippi to be united because of their unity in Christ, we offer the same plea. On behalf of the leadership here at King's Cross Church, I plead with you to continue to pursue the unity that you have with one another because of Jesus Christ. Let us value and prioritize uh, uh, what we have in Christ above all the other secondary things we value. And so we've seen our need for unity. The next thing we'll look at is the threat to our unity, the threat to our unity. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So far, we've seen that Paul's plea for unity is rooted in your unity with Christ. That is, since they're united with Christ, they must be united with one another. And how they're to sustain the unity, this kind of unity, is how? To do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above themselves. Now, right, listen carefully, right? You may have noticed that verse 3 and 4 both contain a positive and negative command, right? There's an emphasis on the positive, okay, on what they need to do, okay? But these two verses do not only contain what needs to be done to maintain unity, but they also include how unity can be fractured, in other words, these verses do highlight humility as the virtue that will sustain unity, but they also expose a major threat to unity. And the threat to unity, these two verses expose, is selfish ambition and vain conceit. Selfish ambition and vain conceit. What are they? All right, let's begin with selfish ambition. The Greek word for selfish ambition is erytheia. All right, the phrase selfish ambition is actually hard to find in any, in any writings. If you look at writings before the New Testament, it's hard to find, okay? The only piece of literature this phrase can be found in is Aristotle's work of political philosophy titled Politics, okay? In it, he defines selfishly ambitious people as, as those who want to achieve political office by unfair means. That was written thousands of years ago, and nothing's changed, okay? Nothing's changed, okay? In other words, selfishly ambitious people are those who will run for office and gain votes by deceit. Therefore, whenever we exalt ourselves to get what we want, at the cost of our character or at the expense of someone else, we are under the influence of selfish ambition. Nothing wrong with ambition, right? There's a pure, sanitized form of ambition, 
But here we are talking about the impure version of ambition, which is selfish ambition. Okay, if you guys remember in chapter 1, verse 15 to 17, which like seems like a long time ago in this same letter, not too, like earlier in this letter, Paul like talks about how um, because of his imprisonment, a lot of Christians were being passionate about the gospel, but he also pointed out that some are preaching the gospel for right reasons and wrong reasons, okay? And he points out that those who are preaching the gospel for wrong reasons are doing it out of what selfish ambition and we looked at that several weeks ago if you weren't here go back listen to the sermon or read it yourself and study it yourselves could be helpful okay in other words what's happening here is selfish ambition is all about when we exhort ourselves to get what we want at the cost of our character or at the expense of someone else. So that's selfish ambition. What about vain conceit? Never heard that used before. Vain conceit. And you probably have a, um, a Bible translation that says something different. But vain conceit means excessive pride or self-esteem that has no foundation in reality. Vain conceit is an elevated and incorrect sense of self. It's an unrealistic view of self. You know, that person, that person in the mirror, right? That has an unrealistic view of themselves. That's vain conceit. And so, in essence, selfish ambition and vain conceit fall into the category of self-centeredness, right? It's to value yourself above others and it's to be consumed with your own interests and ignore the interests and needs of others. It's a self-seeking and self-promoting attitude that creates or even seeks and enjoys division. And this attitude is a major threat to the unity we as a church have because of Christ. If you're a regular church worker or you've been a Christian for a while now, you've no doubt heard stories about divisions in the church or church splits. And every time you hear, you know, you've heard about these things, I'm sure you've asked questions like, um, how could this happen when we're supposed to be united as the body of Christ why didn't these churches agree to work towards um, a peaceful resolution that would have avoided this division and maintained unity? I ask myself, as a pastor, I ask myself same questions whenever I hear about a church that has closed their doors because of internal conflict. Church splits or the division of a church into two or more churches can have many causes. Okay, a church, right, closed down because several of the members decided to manipulate people and events for their own ends. The reason another church eventually split was because one interpretation of a non-essential, right, doctrine 
was emphasized and used as a measure for who was included and who was not. A church experienced division because of financial issues. These issues included disagreements over budget, expenditure, mission expenditure, incurring, um, etc., etc. Sadly, this is true, differences of opinion regarding music and worship, color of the carpet, order of worship, color of the walls, right, also are frequent causes of divisions in the church. And gosh, I was going to read it to you guys, but I just don't have time. There's been some absurd reasons why churches have eventually closed. Like, silly. But the interesting thing is, as we look at the reasons why churches closed, the reason for a church split are numerous. They are. But they all stem from the same root cause. And that is selfish ambition and vain conceit. When members of the church value themselves and value their opinions and preferences, when members of a church become consumed with their own interests and ignore the interests and needs of others, when members of a church become obsessed with their own glory rather than the fame and glory of Jesus, that is vain conceit and selfish ambition, which, if by God's grace is not, is not suffocated, will lead to a church family deciding to split or close. It's sad, but it's true. And let me just say, King's Cross Church, like, it's been awesome what's been happening. Our, our kind of motto, um, you know, mission, vision, is to be a church family on mission with Jesus. And gosh, I have seen us, I have seen that happen. I have seen us function as a church and love and serve each other. I've seen us become passionate about mission and everything, but King's Cross Church, like, we're not immune. Selfish ambition and vain conceit are a threat to the unity we have because of Christ. James chapter 4, verse 1 to 2 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And so King's Cross Church, we are not immune to our church imploding. And I hope that never happens. But if it ever does, we'll look back and we'll identify selfish ambition. All of us becoming so all about ourselves and what we want. 
and our preferences, we'll be able to trace it back and say, that's what started to happen. And so, King's Worship, may we let go and suffocate all of our personal preferences <laughs> so that we may hold on to and embrace our calling and our mission to make Jesus famous both in our lives and in the community around us. So we've seen our need for unity, the threat to our unity. Last, we will see the key um, to maintaining unity, the key to maintaining unity. And so the threat to unity is selfish ambition, but the key to unity, that is, that is whatever will maintain the unity we have with one another because of Jesus Christ is humility. It's humility, and this kind of humility is defined by Paul in verses 3 and 4, right? Look at verses 3 and 4 again. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, rather in humility... Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In these two verses, Paul defines humility as not lifting up self and serving self, but lifting up others and serving others. Selfless humility is thinking also about the needs of others. A while ago, my wife had planned a day at the beach with a friend. Sadly, the night before the beach day, she received a text from her friend. Her friend had canceled. And as you can imagine, Eleanor was upset, you know, because she was really looking forward to spending time not only with her friend, but like Eleanor loves the beach and just wanted to hang out at the beach. And so as like a husband who's trying to be good, that night, I, you know, she received the test. She told me she was upset. I tried to, you know, do my best to comfort her and pray for her. Um, it was a while ago. I can't remember what the results were, um, but you can ask her. Um, that night, um, I had to stay up late to get some work done. And not long after I had started to work, like a crazy thought popped into my mind, and it was, go with her. <laughs> Why don't you just go with her? Who's that? <laughs> I was troubled by this thought. And I bet some of you guys are thinking, Obed, what's wrong with you? What's so bad about going to the beach with your wife? Like, the beach is awesome. Your wife, she's even more awesome. That's an amazing combination for you. What? Why were you troubled by that? I have my reasons. Number one, I cannot swim. Okay? And number two, I am tanned to the max. <laughs> I don't need any more color. And so whenever I go to the beach, I'm like, what? I can't swim. I can't get in the water. And I'm just here, just <laughs> roasting for no apparent reason. There's no purpose. 
And so as I wrestled with whether I should go to the beach or not, God reminded me literally of these verses and challenged me to value my wife by looking out for her interests. And what this looked like for me was to go to the beach with her the next day. This, Philippians chapter 2, is one of my favorite passages, but it's also the passage I recommend to couples who are either getting married, getting ready for marriage, or just married in general. It's for every Christian, but it's not really one of the wedding or marriage passages, but I think it should be. For me... This was one of many ways God challenged me to exercise true biblical um, humility in my life. And so the question is, what about you? How can you exercise this kind of humility? How can you value others above yourself and also look to their interests? We live in a culture that is self-centered. We really do. And the focus is on self. But here, Christians are being reminded to be selfless. To not only look out for their benefit, but the interests of others as well. And so husbands, what's that going to look like? Wives, what's that going to look like? If you're young, old, wherever you are, what does it look like for you to, not, to also look out for the benefit and interests of others? Humility is defined as not lifting up self and serving self, but lifting up others and serving others and... Paul doesn't here just doesn't define what selfless humility is. And what he goes on to do next is he gives us an example of what true humility is. And I love this is incredible, guys, right? He's not like, okay, uh, I want you to be united because you're united with Christ, and how you are to maintain unity is to be selfless, is to um, have this selfless humility. But after defining it, he goes on to give us a real-life example of what true humility is. And this is not just a mere example. It's more than that. It's the greatest example of humility and the greatest example of humility is not your mom or dad, I'm sorry. It's not your pastor, definitely not. It's not Ned Flanders or Madame Teresa. It's not the military fighting for your freedom. But the greatest example of humility is Jesus Christ. Why is that? Why is he the greatest example of humility? This is why. Look at verse 6. Who, that is Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
All right, gosh, I wish we had time to really unpack that. But what we're reading here is absolutely true, right? Christ, Jesus Christ was fully God. He was equal to God in every respect, but he did not insist on holding on to all the privileges and benefits and quality with God gave him. Instead, look at verse 7, rather... He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Think about this. God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, who is all-powerful and all-knowing, became a man. Look at verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. For real? Jesus Christ, the King, who was fully God, lets go of his rights and privileges as God and empties himself by becoming human just like you and me. And if you don't understand what that means, welcome. It's lofty stuff here. It really is. And I was trying to understand it. And I was like, oh, this weekend... Is the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. Okay? As a British citizen, I hope so I can go there. And I hope you guys, Diamond Jubilee is 70 years of reigning. Okay? In, I think, three years' time, um, Queen Elizabeth II would have been the longest reigning um, um, monarch in England. It's incredible. Okay? And so then I was thinking, imagine, imagine the Queen one day decides to say, I'm going to leave Buckingham Palace, okay? And I'm going to go down to London and go to where most of the homeless people live. Or, uh, you know, to make it more understanding to you guys, I'm going to fly to America, okay? <laughs> I'm going to go to LA, and I'm going to go to Skid Row, right? And just live there. And just live there. Imagine if that was the headline you was reading. And it's legit. You would be blown away. Okay? In a similar way, and the Queen's example is just merely just so small and tiny compared to what Jesus did. Jesus Christ, who was fully God, Let's go of his rights and privileges as God and empties himself by becoming human just like you and me. And why, he did, why did he do it? He did this all in order to die one of the most horrific and disgraceful deaths in history. Jesus coming to earth was an amazing act of humility. In heaven, he had all the glory, honor, and worship, and majesty, and he traded it all so that he could die the most painful and disgraceful death in history. And he did it all, and he did it all for you. For you. So that you may be reconciled to God. Jesus exemplified humility by counting you as significant enough to become a mere man. 
Jesus exemplified humility by looking out for your interests. You were dead in your sins and your trespasses, and Jesus decided to come so that he may relate to you and not only relate to you, but die for you so your sins may be forgiven. And in Jesus doing this, he submitted to God's will. He became the servant of men, and he sacrificed his life in order to give you life. If you want the greatest example of a basketball player, I'm told you can look and check out, go on YouTube and check out Michael Jordan. If you want the greatest example of a poet, you check out Shakespeare. If you want the greatest example of a composer and pian pianist, you check out Beethoven. But if you want the greatest example of humility, you don't look in at anyone or anywhere else apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus is humility personified. He is the epitome of humility. There is no other person you should seek to learn humility from than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus' humility to the point of death was not the end but he rose again from the grave and he had victory over death. And because of his outstanding display of humility, look at what happens in verse 9, 10, and 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Man, there's so much in here. But this is the reality of where Jesus is and how he's reigning. He's no longer in the grave. If you take a plane and go to um, um, Israel, to, to where they think his grave, you know, his grave is and his tomb, it's empty. Jesus rose again, and he didn't just rise again, but he is now reigning and ruling. Jesus' humility brought about his exaltation. And so if you're a Christian, um, let me remind you of several things. Just some questions. Like Jesus, are you willing to serve others by looking out for their interests? Like Jesus, are you willing to let go of your rights and privileges in order to see others saved and mature as Christians? Like Jesus, are you willing to die to lay down your life for the sake of others? This selfless humility doesn't only maintain um, unity, but it also advances the gospel. A friend of mine, he was in his early 20s, and one day he announced to all of us that he's selling his clothes, his shoes, his books, and many other items. And why did he do that? He did it so that he could purchase a one-way plane ticket to the country of Jordan. Why? Why did he do that? He did it so that he may become fluent in Arabic so he can proclaim the gospel to the people of that nation. Before he left, in one of his email updates, he answered the question whether the mission will be dangerous or not. 
Is he putting his life at risk? He's in his 20s. What is he doing? Is he wasting his life? So he answers that question in this way. He says, there may be some danger, but the gospel is worth the risk. I do not want you to think I'm seeking martyrdom, but I do not fear it. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Here is one of many Christians who have left their comforts and privileges and rights and purchased one-way tickets to foreign countries to proclaim the gospel to people who will probably give them a hard time and make life uncomfortable for them. Like Jesus, you will be challenged to abandon your rights and privileges and comforts and security and benefits and dreams, all for God's glory. And that was the end goal of Jesus' act of humility and exhortation. End of verse 11 says, it was to the glory of God the Father. In the same way, our acts of humility are ultimately for the glory of God. God's glory must be our supreme aim. And when we seek to glorify God rather than exalt ourselves, we not only maintain the unity in our church body, but we also, wow, we also get to advance the gospel. Let's pray. And so, God, our hearts desire unity. And so, God, I pray for us as a church family that we would continue to pursue unity that is found in Christ alone. And that as we do, we would seek to allow the life of your son Jesus Christ to be lived through our life. You are so good to us. Thank you for providing us with everything we need in order to remain united as we aim to live for you and to love you in this city. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.